Father God, uh, thank you again for an opportunity to come together um, to worship you, to learn more about who you are, to learn about your word. Um, God, thank you for the technology that allows us to record this. So for those who are out of town or those who are listening around the globe, they have an opportunity to stay in touch with this study uh, and dig in deeper to your word. God, thank you for all of that. God, we ask that tonight you would be, you'd be with us, your presence would be felt, that you would be in and through this entire study tonight, that we would feel your presence and hear your word uh, and just get closer and closer to you as we wish every week. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're still, we're continuing to do an overview, book by book. Um, we just finished the book of Joshua. We took two sessions on Joshua, which was one more session than I expected. Um, but there's a lot of good nuggets in Joshua. The, the transition from the first five books of Moses to the books of history is interesting. The first five books, Moses is the leader of Israel. It talks about the beginning of creation, the, be- the beginning of the nation of Israel, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of redemption. Everything starts and the foundation is in Genesis. Uh, but then it really kicks into high gear in Exodus when we get into Moses' story, and everything else is focused on Moses' story and the law that God gives Moses as they're wandering around in the desert. But then they are occupying the land. Joshua, The book of Joshua serves as a bridge to the rest of the books of history because the first five books, they're wandering around in the desert. They haven't achieved the promise that God had given Abraham. They haven't obtained the promised land. The book of Joshua is them conquering and obtaining the promised land. And now, from the book of Judges forward, they're in the land. So there's a, di- there's a different tone. But the book of Judges is also sort of a bridge because in the book of Joshua and in the first five books of Moses, there was a central leadership. There was Moses as their leader, Aaron as the high priest. And then in Joshua, there was Joshua as the main leader, Caleb as a general, um, and they had Eleazar as the high priest. They had consistent leadership, but now they're in the land. They've occupied the land. Joshua has given everybody tasks, each tribe their own task and land to conquer and settle and to kick out the inhabitants of the land so that they won't be tempted by their pagan gods. And each tribe is kind of taking care of their own business, and there's no central leadership. And the book of Judges covers that entire history of when there's no central leadership, from the end of Joshua's life until the anointing of Saul as king is really the period of the Judges. Now, it's about 300 to 350 years. It covers somewhere between 1380 and 1050 B.C. We have no idea who wrote the book, but most people attribute the book of Judges to Samuel, who was the last judge at the end of the Judges period who anointed King Saul and King David into their place. Um, And it makes sense that he would be the one who wrote the book. And so this is the, the time period that this is covering. The period of the Judges, there's no central leadership, and it starts off with remembering a bit of Joshua's leadership remembering uh, their current goal, and then it gives us a list of their failures after Joshua. 
is gone. Picking up and starting in, in chapter 1, verse 27, we hear that Manasseh didn't, the tribe of Manasseh didn't drive out inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages or Tanakh and its villages and a bunch of others that they failed to drive out of the land. Verse 29 tells us that the tribe of Ephraim didn't drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. Verse 30, the tribe of Zebulun didn't drive out the inhabitants of Nahalal and the Canaanites who dwelt among them. Asher didn't drive out the inhabitants of Akko or Sidon and other cities. The tribe of Naphtali didn't drive out these inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And so they failed on their mission that Joshua left them with in his old age. They conquered the land. They were running the land, but they failed at following through on God's word to drive out the people. And they were told to drive out the people so that they wouldn't be tempted by their culture and wouldn't be tempted by their forms of worship. Because their forms of worship were kind of ugly. There are two gods that you're going to hear about a lot throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Baal and Ashtaroth. Baal and Ashtaroth were really the gods of fertility, and they had a lot of other functions. Um, and as being gods of fertility, they also had a lot of kind of gross worship involved. There was prostitution that was involved in their worship. Um, there was the slaughtering of innocent children, of babies, because they're the gods of fertility, so they would give up their young babies for a good harvest. Um, and so these were the types of things that God was fighting against and telling them not to participate in. The death of babies and sexual immorality and prostitution and practices that, was, that were part of Baal worship and Ashtaroth worship. And so they failed to drive out the inhabitants of these lands, the people who held to that form of worship, and what happens? Well, in chapter 2, the angel of the Lord, uh, which is often considered a theophany or a Christophany, or Christ showing up in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord came up in, from Gilgal to Bachim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. So why have you done this? So he's saying, I made a covenant with you. I will keep my covenant with you forever, but you have not told me what you were gonna do for me. God is telling the Israelites, why have you not kicked out the people and torn down their altars, their places of worship? Why? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, and they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So he's saying, you didn't listen to me, so I'm not going to drive them out for you. You didn't do what I asked you to do. So now they're going to live among you, and it's going to be a thorn in your side, and it's going to be something that catches you and gets you into trouble. But it's your fault. You have to live with the consequences of your actions. You didn't do what God asked you to do. And after this, we find out that they cover the death of Joshua, starting in verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Herez, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gosh. 
When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Verse 10 is the reason the rest of this book exists. The generation that followed Joshua, the generation that fought hard to obtain God's promise, the the generation that went to war and dealt with all of the harshness of obtaining the promised land, of obtaining God's promise, and they heard Joshua's last words, that was a generation who followed God. Even after Joshua died, the, the generals and the elders who were part of Joshua's congregation, those people followed God. But the next generation says, they arose after them and they didn't know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. God made a promise. Joshua and his generation followed through with it but the next generation didn't experience it. And so they got complacent. They dealt with the peacefulness and how great everything was. And they just decided, since everything's so great, I can do what I want to do and I can leave God behind because they didn't have to fight for it. I can hope you understand how relevant the book of Judges is for us. Because here's the deal with this book. We're not going to cover every little detail tonight because we're doing an overview. We're looking at a survey from the whole thing. Now, the book of Judges, when you're getting into every minute detail, there's a lot of rabbit holes you can go down. There's a lot of different things with each judge. There's different moral problems that each judge has. Gideon is a coward. Samson is an adulterer and a womanizer. You have the issues um, and the arguments for and against women in ministry with Deborah as uh, a judge. All of those things are... You can, you can uniquely tackle them as you go through each judge, but we're looking at what the whole grand scheme of judges is about. And so as complex and complicated as each individual thing can get as you go through the book of Judges, when you're looking at the big overall picture, it's actually really simple. This is maybe the simplest book I've had to prepare for because what you'll see throughout this book is just a cycle that lasts for hundreds of years, and still exists today. You already saw it start at the end of verse 10. The next generation rebelled against God. It starts with rebellion. And then when they rebel, the nation rebels, then they're disciplined. And when the nation is disciplined and things go badly, then they realize, oh wait, we should have never left God. They repent. God has mercy. And he brings them a deliverer, which is a judge. And then the land has peace for a period of time. And then another generation rebels. And then they're disciplined. And then they repent. And then God sends another deliverer. And then they have peace for a while. And then another generation comes along and they rebel. And then they're disciplined. And then they repent. And then God brings another deliverer and there's peace. And this is the cycle that you see over and over and over again. And that's the point. It is a national and a personal attitude problem. It's relevant nationally. It's relevant within churches. It's relevant as an individual. When nations get complacent, when churches get complacent, when an individual gets complacent, it's easy to rebel. It's easy to turn off and not focus on your spiritual disciplines. It's easy to start letting other things creep in. It's easy to add things to worship because you want to fit in with culture, and then you start slowly moving away from God and moving towards culture, but somehow trying to say that 
God is still a part of things. And then you see the, the walls come crashing down, the world breaks down, things that nation fails, lives fall apart, churches break down, and if they're lucky, they repent, get deliverance. And it's also true of our own individual lives as Christians. We live in a state of rebellion as humanity, as sinful beings. We experience the consequences of our sin, though usually sin has an immediate gratification. In the long run, it leads towards things that a life that we never wanted because our intention was never to go down that road and end up in that place, but we did because the consequences are long-term where the gratification is short-term with sin. And what happens? We feel that discipline. We feel the regret. We feel the shame or just the difficulty of the of our actions. And when we come to a place of repentance, Jesus is there to deliver us and offer us eternal life. So that is the entire story of the book of Judges. And we're going to kind of dig into that a little bit and what that looks like. Chapter two really outlines that. That's what the whole chapter is about. It just gives you that outline in less simple terms. So we're going to move right in to chapter three, and we're going to look at the first judge The first judge, Othniel, you'll see, it starts, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Rebellion. This is uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. When the children cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. So what? The tr- Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot God. They rebelled. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Discipline. This king from Mesopotamia was risen up for eight years, and they felt the discipline. Things weren't so sweet anymore. Then the children cried out to the Lord, repentance, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. For the children of Israel who delivered them who delivered them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So Caleb apparently is not done being mentioned. Caleb must have left some sort of impression on this judge, because what you're going to see as we go through the judges is not only is the nation of Israel getting worse, because that's the sin cycle, this cycle continues, but it's not just a flat circle. It's a spiral. They're circling the drain, and they're going down the funnel. Each generation gets worse, and as such, each judge sort of gets worse. So when you see the contrast between Othniel, Caleb's younger brother, who they have, there's nothing bad said about him, and the only thing that really is described about his life is that he's Caleb's brother, and Caleb was great. Caleb's younger brother, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. Uh, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Which is, by the way, how long the generation wandered in the desert. Uh, then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So Othniel's dead, and God raises up another judge 40 years later. And what's it say? The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Rebellion. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. Discipline because they had done evil in his sight. 
Verse 14, so the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. So 18 years have gone by. This time, the cycle extends a little bit. They live in their rebellion a little bit longer. But the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. Repentance, deliverer. Ehud, son of Gera, this is kind of a gross story. He's a left-handed guy. So this is one fault, I guess, is he's left-handed. So apparently he's great because I'm left-handed. But he's just, you know, he's a little different. But that, I don't know why that's mentioned, but he is. Maybe just because he is different. So left-handed guy. And then this story plays out. It's kind of a gross story. The king is a chubby fella, really big. Um, Elon goes to pay the tribute. So this is what's happening. Because the king of Moab has taken over the Israelites, he's now charging exorbitant tax. And for these 18 years that he's in control of Israel, the Israelites send a representative to pay the tax to the king. The king receives the tax. Now this year, in the 18th year, Ehud is the Israelite who's responsible for going to the king of Moab. He decides he makes a sword, a double-edged sword that he hides in his cloak. And when he goes to visit the king to pay the tax, he stabs his stomach, and his stomach is so big it swallows the sword. Gross, like I said. And it even says that dirt came out, which that's just a, that's just a really nice translation for what came out. Um, so I'm sure you can picture what it is, and I'm not going to say it, but it's gross. But then Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 40 years. And then another judge comes along. Shamgar, they don't really say anything about him. He killed 600 men with an ox good. We don't know if he was during one of the other judges, if he was separate. We don't really know. It doesn't give us any information. But then Deborah's risen up. It says, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's that cycle again, rebellion. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth. Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, repentance, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron and, 20, uh, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So, Deborah has now been raised up as a judge. She's judging during this time, and a king is raised up against Israel uh, for 20 years. Now, she's judging. She's also a prophetess. I just want to explain what the role of a prophet and prophetess is, because I don't want this to get misconstrued. It is a ministry position, but it's not a position with authority. As you go through all of the prophets, you'll find out hardly anybody listens to them. The role of a prophet is to point out the sin and the issues with the current culture, with the current nation, um, and they, try to, they tell people to get back on the same page as God. But hardly anybody ever listens to them. It's not a position of authority. It's not even an official position within the priesthood. It's just someone who cries out and has the word of God and the spirit of God within them. It is a ministry position, but it's not a position of authority, or at least any authority that man has ever recognized. All throughout the Old Testament, people do not listen to the prophets, and they often kill them. And Deborah is unique. So, so far, we haven't seen anybody, anything bad really written about any of the judges yet. That's the same thing with Deborah. 
Nothing is bad written about, only good stuff is written about Deborah. She's a prophetess. She even holds a ministry position as well as the political position of being a judge. But she uniquely is one of the judges, if not the only judge, who doesn't hold a military position, just a civic political office. In fact, you meet the military, the one who runs the military in verse 8. Barak. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. What's happening is they're fighting against Jabin's army, against the oppressor of Israel. Barak is the leader of the military, but he won't go because he's a coward unless Deborah goes with him. And so she says, as a prophetess, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking for the Lord. Uh, For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So she tells Barak, you're a coward, I'll go with you. But because I'm going with you because you won't do what God has asked you to do on your own, the glory that would have belonged to you is now going to belong to someone else. And it will be a woman to bring even more shame on you in this patriarchal society. Verse 17, however, Sisera, which is the leader of the army, of Jabin's army, however, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Now we find out who the glory is going to belong to in this war. Jael, the wife of Heber, the uh, Kenite, uh, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then she said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent. If any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say, No. So Jael has taken in Sisera as a, she's saying she's going to protect him. She's offered him a drink. She's covering up. She's going to watch the door for him to make sure that no one's come in. This is all a ruse because of what happens next. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg, this is verse 21, and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him, which is really interesting for what happens next. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. (laughs) And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And then as Barak pursued, pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when you went into her tent, There lay Sisera, dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel, at the hand of the children of Israel, grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed the king of Canaan. Then Deborah sings a song. And, uh, you know, Deborah gets a lot of uh, real estate in the book of Judges. She gets a couple of chapters. One of them is just her song. Uh, And you even see the embarrassment of Barak. Barak gets like two verses where he's just mentioned as someone who participates. Um, And then several verses are given to Jael and what she did because the glory went to her. And so this is the embarrassment of Barak for not doing what God asked him to do, for needing Deborah to be there with him. But after Deborah and Barak control the political and the military scene for Israel, the land has rest for 40 years, Um, But then, big surprise, surprise, then the children of Israel 
did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered into the hand Midian for seven years. And so you see this constant cycle. This is the whole book. It's not a difficult book to grasp as an overview. This cycle is what happens. The next judge is Gideon. But the culture has been more inundated with the people that live among them. More time has gone by. It's gotten worse. And you're going to see Gideon starts is the first of the judges who's really not great. Um, Gideon starts off, he's threshing wheat in a wine press, which is in low altitude, which is where you're not supposed to thresh wheat. Because you would thresh wheat typically on the top of a hill because the whole idea is to throw the wheat up in the air and the wind will separate the chaff and the wheat will fall. And you do that at a place where the wind has the most play. You don't do that in the wine press underneath in the valley. You don't do that there. But he's just, well, he's Gideon. He's not great. In fact, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in uh, Aphra. This is verse 11 of chapter 6, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Uh, so this is why I think Jesus is sarcastic, because he's, he's calling this guy a mighty man of valor who is clearly doing something very cowardly. Um, but he's also foreshadowing and saying, Gideon, you might not be this brave, but I will fight for you, really is what ultimately happens. Gideon asks God to perform several tests to prove that he's really supposed to do the task that he set out to do. And finally, Gideon agrees, and then he gathers men to uh, fight against the Midianites. And then God comes to him and tells him, that's too many. This is in chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Test Israel, claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So God's saying, I don't want you to have a victory with thousands and thousands of men. I just, I don't want that because I don't ever want you to think that this victory you're about to get is because of how great you are. It's not. It's about how great God is. So 22,000 of the people left when Gideon asks them, if you're afraid, you can leave. So 22,000 people are just like Gideon uh, and 10,000 men remained. And so Gideon, God tells Gideon to separate even more. 10,000 is still way too many. And so he has them drink water from the river and those who lap the water like dogs and those who pick up the water with their hands, he separates them that way and we're left with 300 men. And Gideon fights the Midianite army with 300 guys. And he doesn't really fight, he just makes a bunch of noise in the middle of the night. And the Midianites kill themselves out of fear because they think they're getting attacked by a large army. Um, and so God delivers them, which is great. And they're, they're free because Gideon listened to God and God was able to do something miraculous through the noise that they made. Verse 23, though, of chapter 8, people are asking Gideon to rule. Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. So now Gideon seems to have a right frame of mind after all of this. But things change just a couple verses later. In verse 27, it says, Gideon made, he, he takes plunder from the people. They give him gold and robes and 
all kinds of stuff. And this is what he does. He says, he makes it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Aphra, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel and so that they lifted their heads no more and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Okay, so after Gideon starts out bad, he's a coward, but he, and he tests God over and over again. And then he finally does what God says. And then he finally, after God does something miraculous, he realizes, no, it's God who reigns. He rules over you. And then not too long after he has finally this epiphany, he goes and he makes an idol out of gold. And that's the end of Gideon's story because corruption has snuck in. Even the people put in leadership now are corrupt. And it only gets worse. Because what do we have next? We're going to talk about Samson. We're going to skip ahead to Samson because Samson is the worst. Now, Samson is one of my favorite stories because Samson does cool things. Samson ties foxtails together and sends them and, and lights their tails on fire and sends them through fields uh, and burns the fields of the Philistines. Samson uh, takes a a donkey jawbone and just kills people with it like it's a broadsword. He does really cool action movie hero things. He's a fun story to read, but he's also horrible. He's also the worst of the judges, but he also has the closest connection to Jesus. The, this, the picture of Christ in the book of Judges is A, the constant cycle, rebellion, discipline, repentance, deliverance. Jesus is our deliverer. But Samson is also the closest picture of Christ in the book of Judges because of Samson's birth and Samson's death. The middle of Samson's life is a train wreck, but his birth and his death resemble Christ. And we'll talk about that. So the beginning, chapter 13, the first look into Samson's life that we get says this. Again, so here's the cycle. Again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's the rebellion. The Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines. There's the discipline. Now there was a man from Zorah of, family, uh, of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his father was barren and had no children. And then the angel of the Lord, here it is again, Christophany, Theophany, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So, already we have, there's a miracle birth that's going to take place. The mother is, present, is presented to first with this miracle. Um, and this child will be a Nazarite. Now, Jesus was not a Nazarite, but Jesus was a Nazarene. And Matthew makes a weird note about how there's a prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. This might be the only thing that that relates to that in the Old Testament, that Samson's birth and death are a representation of Christ, and he was a Nazarite, and Jesus is a Nazarene. So that's maybe the only thing I can think of. Um, so anyway, the mother's been talked to. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel, of the angel of God. 
very awesome, which is probably my favorite sentence in the Bible. A man of God came to me. His countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. It's, it's my language right there. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name. And he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Don't drink wine or similar drink. Don't eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do with the child who is to be born. And so God listened to the voice of Manoah. The angel of God came to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran in haste, told her husband, and said to him, Look, the man who has come to me the other day has now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife, and when, the, when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Right? The angel of the Lord, Jesus in the Old Testament, what does he say? I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when your word comes to pass we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, <clears throat> Why do you ask my name, seeing, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened, the flame went up toward the heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces in the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we've seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering or a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these. So the woman bore a son, called his name Samson, and the child grew, uh, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahana, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtal. So they realize this is God. This is an interesting piece of the Old Testament as sort of a little tangent. Now we know from the Torah, from the first five books of the, of the Bible, Moses asked to see God face to face. God said, no. If you see me face to face, you'll die. So God passes by Moses and shows him his glory, but not his face. And then Moses comes down from the mountain all glowing. But here, the angel of the Lord is referred to as God, and he speaks directly face to face with these people. And then they think, oh, we're going to die because we've seen God. Well, what is this? This is the beginning of we're starting to understand the Trinity in the Old Testament, and the persons of God. Jesus can show himself face to face to the people. God the Father can, cannot. We can't take being in his presence because Christ is the physical representation of God on earth um, that we can see. So we're starting to see that play out. Now, 
Samson's life in the middle is a disaster. He sees a woman who's not an Israelite, wants her, marries her. They, the Philistines don't let him take her, and then he kills a bunch of Philistines. And then he sees another woman, he sees another woman, he wants her, he marries her. This time they let him marry her, and then they turn her on him. This is Delilah. And so Samson's snag is sexual immorality, just like the same problem of the worship of Baal and Asherah. Same problem. Sexual immorality is part of the worship. Samson struggles with it, but he's the leader of Israel because we've gone this far down the rabbit hole that the leader struggles with the same thing as the people. There's nobody left to put in charge but this guy. In fact, he's even a guy who's named after a pagan god. His parents named him Samson, which they named him after a sun god. He was a child of the sun. So they even give him a pagan name, even though God visits his parents directly. Like, this is how bad it's gotten in Israel. This is how bad the judges are. This is how bad the culture is. They're inundated. They have, they have taken their worship of God, and they've included all of the pagan worship around it, and they've started to put that into their own worship as well. So much so that even a face-to-face -face meeting with the angel of the Lord ends up with them naming their son after a pagan god. Horrible. That's where we're at. But that's all God has to work with. And uh, Samson gives in, gives in to his urges, fails. He tells Delilah all where his strength comes from, and he even doesn't recognize that it comes from God. He thinks that it comes from his hair. They cut his hair, and he thinks he's going to be able to break, take on whoever comes at him because he's the guy who can take on armies. But they come and capture him after he tells Delilah to cut his hair. So we pick up chapter 16, verse 21. The Philistines took him and put out his eyes. So they gouged Samson's eyes out once they finally had control of him. And they brought him down to Gaza and they bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. However, the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. So his head was shaved. They capture him, they gouge his eyes out. Now his hair is growing again. Now the lords of the Philistines, the rulers of the Philistines, gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to their God, Dagon, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. So now they're declaring Dagon's victory over the God of Israel and over Samson. And so it happened when their hearts were merry that they said, call for Samson that he may perform for us. So they, they're making a mockery of him. Um, this is Samson's story. They're calling him out and they're mocking him before his death, like Jesus. So they called for Samson from the prison and he performed for them and they stationed him between the pillars. And Samson said, to the lad who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars which support the temple so I can lean on them. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord saying, O Lord, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once. O God, that I may be with, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, braced himself against them, one on his right, the other on his left. 
Then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him, brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of his father, Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. So this is the scene of Samson's death. He's bleeding from his head because his eyes have been gouged out. Think about Jesus bleeding from the crown of thorns. He's bleeding from the head because his eyes are gouged out and he's performing, he's being mocked by the people. And then he prays one last prayer. He asks for God to let him have vengeance. So even in his final prayer, he's doing something selfish, but he's finally recognizing that God's the one in control. And God allows him to have one more act of strength. And in his death, he has one hand on a pillar on his right, one hand on a pillar on his left, and he's stretched, his arms are stretched out like Jesus on the cross as he pushes them out, bleeding from his head, and he delivers Israel in that moment. So the picture should look pretty clear. So Samson's birth and death very much are a picture of Christ, but the middle of his life is an absolute disaster. Now, this is really sort of the end of the book of Judges really dealing with the judges. Now they're dealing with a bunch of infighting and civil war and horrible things that have happened. Uh, You're dealing with, there's a Levite who takes a concubine, which he shouldn't do because it's against the Jewish law. And then the concubine has an affair. And while she's having an affair, a bunch of men come to that household uh, and they want to do disgusting things to the people at the house. And so to satisfy them, the owner of the house sends the women out. He sends his daughter and the Levite's concubine out, and they abuse the woman, the women, both of them, all night until they're dead. Um, the Levite walks out of his house the next morning, sees his dead wife, his dead concubine, says something to her. She doesn't react because she's dead. And now you realize what's going on. He picks her up, carries her, carries her into his house, cuts her into 12 pieces, and sends a piece to each of the tribes to spark a civil war because of the depravity that's happening in the tribe of Dan, or Benjamin, in the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and then the rest of the country, the other 11 tribes go to war against the tribe of Benjamin and almost wipe them out. By the end of that, there's only 600 Benjamin, uh, Benjamites left that are men. Uh, after that civil war. So we're dealing with horrible lifestyles and issues throughout the rest of this book. And it gets wrapped up in a single verse. The very last verse at the end of the book of Judges tells you the whole story. Verse 25 of chapter 21 says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the lesson. That cycle, that cycle starts with rebellion moves to discipline, then to repentance, and then to deliverance. But it starts with rebellion because the people leave the truth. They add aspects of worship from the world. They leave God's word, they add to it, and they add aspects of the world to it, and then they become free to not have moral absolutism, to not trust in God's word as the moral authority, but to trust in their own feelings and in the culture itself to bring moral authority And then they start changing their worship and they start having moral issues 
And so it starts with religious adding, adding to your religious practices, adding to the, adding to the moral authority, making something other than God and his word the moral authority. And that leads you to moral issues, moral relativism, which brings about civil problems and cultural problems because now it goes from the individual to the nation and depravity exists and discipline happens. And it stays that way until repentance occurs and God always offers deliverance. The door is always open. Jesus is the door. There's only one door, but the door is always open. And it's always about remembering to go back and to fully accept the authority of God and to walk through that door that Jesus offers him. And so this is the attitude. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes rather than seeing what God says is right. And so that's the lesson. And that's how the cycle happens. And that's the whole point of the book of Judges. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Um, thank you for this exciting book, this adventurous book, this torturous book, this violent book, this confusing book, yet so simple book. Thank you for making it so clear what the pattern is and how to avoid it. Or if you're stuck in it, how to get out. Thank you for sending us a deliverer. Help us to know if we're rebelling and when to repent and how to follow you and to give others that opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.